and so there you are. So I at least uh, kept one word that I had promised. Uh, let me, um, yeah, there's, there's a man, uh, and he's, yeah, swirling some things. All right, so there, there are your pyrotechnics for today. Let me just, <laughs> thank you, just for you, Brian. Uh, let me open in prayer, and then I'll give you the lay of the land where we're going to be headed today. Uh, let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, thank you for the blessing of the opportunity that we have to be together today. As we come together as your body, we pray that you would help us to think what it means uh, to be salt and light in the world, uh, to be your ambassadors and heralds, to be your witnesses of the glory of Christ. We pray that you would help us to think about what that means as we gather together regularly and as you send us out into the world, into our different spheres of influence, and the way that you will use your people uh, as they are scattered uh, to share the word of Christ. We pray that you would help us to see this and lay hold of this, and that you would lay hold of us, uh, that we would wrestle with you in prayer, and that you would, uh, you would teach us by your word and lead us to make us uh, evangelists in our own right in, in different spheres and areas where you have us, uh, so that you would be glorified. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, uh, it's been a couple weeks since we gathered together, so I'm going to cram two classes into... No. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we were together, uh, and if you remember, the last time we were together, we looked at a few biblical images of what is evangelism, what is this task all about. Uh, we came up with three pictures. Uh, maybe there are more. You can find others. Uh, steward is another good one, uh, but we talked about being a herald, being a witness, and being an ambassador of the good news of Christ. Um, and then we began to get into some of the misconceptions surrounding uh, evangelism and, and what it is. And today we're going to continue a few of those. The, the point is not just um, for us to, to be more clarified in these things. Well, that, that is a good idea for us to have a really solid idea of what evangelism is. But as we understand what evangelism is not and the barriers that we erect and the misconceptions that we have, hopefully the, the goal is that we're moving toward understanding why would the Lord have us to evangelize and, and what is he doing and, and how has he called us uh, to be a part of this. And so we're going to look at a few more misconceptions and then we're going to actually begin to talk about, well, where does evangelism happen and how and, uh, and how, should it, uh, how should it happen and how should we go about being a part of it. So now we've already seen our pyrotechnics uh, and here is our opening scripture for today. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. You remember the context? Um, this is actually the second half of Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, the first, verse, uh, first half of that verse says that Saul approved of what they did because the previous section was the stoning of Stephen. Uh, and it says, Paul approved. And then it says, it arose, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. A few things I want you to notice about that. Who was it uh, that was preaching the word? Well, it wasn't the apostles. It says very clearly uh, that they were all scattered except the apostles. The leaders and the teachers and preachers that the Lord had chosen to lead the church, and the church is now growing in Jerusalem, they stay behind, at this point at least in the story. They stay behind, and the gospel continues to go out, and it goes out as the people of God are scattered. 
And it, I think it's showing us that the Lord is actually using this scattering, and it's, he's using this persecution, and he's using the antagonism of the world and of the society at large, the culture that is around the church, to spread the people. And as the people are spread, the word is spread. That's a wonderful idea for us to think about what it looks like for the gospel to go forth. That Yes, it happens when we gather together, but it also happens as we go out. And it happens as not just the teachers and the leaders, but the individual members are scattered into different parts of the world and into the different communities, and they take the word of God with them. And so uh, those, those who are scattered, one about preaching the word, would it be uh, that we would do the same thing? Now let's pick up on some of our misconceptions uh, about evangelism. And, and what we were doing with some of these is talking maybe about where these misconceptions come from, uh, what effect they have on our evangelism, and, and how we can push back against them. We looked at two last week. First, that evangelism is only uh, the pastor's job. Found No, it's actually uh, the job of, of the whole church. Uh, and then also that evangelism, the single most important thing a church can do at all times. It is very important, uh, but there is a biblical balance in the New Testament. There is, uh, there's not just conversion, but there's building up in the faith. And so uh, it, what do you do with people who are evangelized, who come to faith in the Lord? Well, you have to build them up, and, and they become evangelists as well. But there is a balance in the New Testament. We want our church uh, to reflect that, that idea of both gathering and perfecting the saints. Now, the challenge for us, as we mentioned last time, is figuring out uh, where that balance is off in our own lives, in our own church, and thinking, well, do we tend more toward uh, perfecting uh, at the expense of the gathering, or do we tend more toward gathering at the expense of perfecting? And we want to follow the Lord, and we want to follow His Word, and we want to be as balanced as His Word would have us to be. Now, uh, here's another misconception about evangelism uh, that we didn't look at last week, and the misconception is, if you're a real Christian, I mean, if you really care about the Lord, if you really love Him, then evangelism will just be the easiest thing ever. You'll go out, and it will be a joyous, joyous thing to share the Word, uh, and you'll do it with ease, and people will flock to you because you'll be so, so exuberant, uh, almost uh, effervescent in your sharing of of the word, it will, just, it will just spring up and bubble out of you. Uh, where do you think this misconception comes from? Dave? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, newly commissioned deacon in the church. Uh, a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and he stands, and everyone around him saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It just poured out, uh, and, and it poured out in a way uh, that it was, it was confrontational, um, and he called people to account, and he laid bare the gospel, and he did this huge history lesson, but there are certain gifted people who seem just to be naturally uh, inclined toward, or maybe we would say supernaturally inclined toward evangelism. That it, that it is a gift that the Lord is working in them. So maybe part of this misconception is that we see other people who are really good at it, um, and we weigh, well, oof, uh, if you're a Christian, maybe that's the norm. Okay? Where else might this misconception come from? Kathy Creed's thinking. I can see it on your face. Tim. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that sometimes the way that it is, uh, that the method of evangelism um, makes it seem very simple uh, and, and boils it down to exactly what you're saying. Well, it's just, it's these scriptures um, and have them on hand and be ready. Now, the Romans Road's pretty good, actually. Uh, it's, it's pretty theologically uh, sound, uh, and it holds together in one book that you can walk them through the, the gospel presentation. That's pretty good. Uh, but you actually have to open your mouth and share that with somebody. There's the, <laughs> there's the problem. Uh, and you have to be bold enough to say, hey, I know something that you need. <laughs> and that's not very easy sometimes, uh, depending on your own proclivities. Now, sometimes these people who are very gifted, God bless them. Uh, the people who are very gifted with evangelism uh, sometimes write books. And they write books from their own experience, and they tell you how easy uh, soul winning can be. I've got a quote I'm going to share with you later from uh, a guy who wrote a book, Soul Winning Made Easy or Made Simple or something like that. And, and the idea is that if you just know how to do it or if you're just outgoing enough, if you've got the right personality, then, oh, man, it will be easy. And you love the Lord, don't you? And there's almost this, this guilt trip that comes with the call to evangelism that if you're not doing it, if it's not easy, then there's something wrong with you. Well, there is something wrong with all of us, uh, but that doesn't mean that, uh, that evangelism should be easy. Dave? Okay. Yeah, how to deal with your troubled child. Uh, yeah, yeah. you don't want my book on evangelism. Uh, and there are lots of other people who you wouldn't read, and uh, you, know, you don't go into the gym and hire uh, the guy who's overweight to be your personal trainer. That's just how it works. We, we latch on to people who are gifted, who tell us about their experience in evangelism, and sometimes, not always, and I think there is a refreshing change in some of the books that are coming out about evangelism, sometimes those who are successful uh, in, you know, however you want to measure that. Sometimes those who are successful or find evangelism easy read these books and we compare ourselves to others and say, man, I, there's something wrong with me if it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yes. If God commands it, it ought to be easy. Like everything else God, com like everything else God commands us to do, like to, yeah. To put to death the sins of the flesh and to not exasperate your children and to not be harsh, you know, all these commands that are so easy, absolutely. Yeah, um, so we're seeing some of where it comes from, but what about the effect? What happens when somebody, maybe it's uh, somebody who's a new believer, and they're told, you're a new believer, what you need to do is start sharing, and it's easy. You simply open your mouth. You're excited about Jesus, aren't you? And you go and you talk to somebody else, and you tell them what a wonderful thing it is uh, that they too can come to know the Lord and have a saving relationship with him. What happens um, when that misconception meets up with reality? There's a disenchantment often. Sure, sure. Uh, but, but you see sometimes people who, who are told evangelism will be really easy, and then they try it like all the other things God has commanded, and they find that it's actually sometimes quite difficult. Um, and they're, they're surprised by that. Uh, and they think either, well, I, I am simply not gifted or not called to do evangelism, 
Uh, they become disillusioned and they, and they walk away from the whole thing and say, well, if it's this hard, what's the point? Maybe somebody else can do it because there are other people who are better at it than me. Ronnie? Oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I, I don't mean to squelch anybody's enthusiasm for evangelism with this, um, but, but the reality is there are a lot of things about sharing the gospel that are really difficult, really difficult. It might be that it's difficult for you because of personality. We're wired differently. Some people are more outgoing. Some people are willing to do uh, sort of cold call evangelism, walked up to somebody on the street, have you heard the good news of Jesus today? Other people would, oh man, that would just scare them right out of their skin. Uh, some people are more outgoing, some are not outgoing, some are extroverts and some are introverts. It might be life stage. You know, sometimes there is, uh, there is a guilt that comes along with different life stages where we take uh, a stay-at-home mom who's homeschooling her very young kids and we say, you need to be out there evangelizing the world. And she says, I spend my entire day changing diapers and talking to children and I have no contact with the outside world. What do you mean? Uh, it, this isn't easy. This is, you know, that would be a completely different thing and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. But there are life stages. Newly retired and suddenly all of your work connections are gone. And you enter this new world and, you, and you're in new hobbies and different stages and, and just different times of your life. It could be just really difficult, and then it's also difficult um, because the world makes it difficult, and the devil makes it difficult, and the reality is that we live in a world that finds the gospel distasteful. The, the, the scriptures tell us that uh, the devil has, uh, the, the prince of the power of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The Bible tells us that the gospel is an offense. It is a stumbling block. That's the word that uh, Paul uses in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, the word actually is, uh, the Greek word is scandalon. It's a scandal to people. It is a stumbling block to those who don't know. And he talks later in 2 Corinthians about being the aroma of Christ. And to some, it's the aroma of life to life. And for others, it's the aroma of death to death. They want nothing to do with it, and it actually seals their condemnation. Others embrace it, and it leads to life. And we have to realize that God is at work, and sometimes evangelism isn't easy because evangelism isn't, isn't accepted and lauded by the world that doesn't want to hear the gospel. So we need to be aware of that. Uh, I mentioned there is uh, sort of a change in some of the literature that's being put out there. This is one of the books that I suggested that maybe you pick up if you're interested in reading more about evangelism. It's by a guy named Rico Tice. It's called Honest Evangelism, and he starts the book by saying, look, evangelism is really hard. That's his job. He's an evangelist. He, he works at the church where John Stott was a minister, uh, All Souls Langham Place in London for years. Um, he's the founder of, anybody heard of Christianity Explored? Uh, sort of a, a group um, gathering that you can put on in a church. You gather unbelievers and you just talk about the gospel and it's, it's an evangelistic outreach tool. And this guy put it together uh, and he says it's really hard. Uh, he says, um, Jesus says, we're sheep among wolves. The Bible tells us to answer those who want to attack us. And if you tell non-Christians about Jesus, it will be painful. It'll be painful. Uh, sometimes it's the pain of others uh, walking away from you. 
In many other cultures, it's the pain of putting your life on the line. Uh, and if you're willing to stand up for the gospel, it can be dangerous uh, to you, to your family, to your, to your health and your goodwill. Um, so we need, to, uh, we need to deal with this. So how can we uh, be prepared to fight against this misconception that evangelism ought to be easy and it will be easy for everyone who's a real believer? How do you push against that? Teresa? Yes, absolutely. Good. Okay. Oh, my. Some people are, apparently. I don't know any of the, the shows that you're talking about. I'm not familiar with, with the network. Um, but Well, yeah, he's not teaching the gospel, though. And we, can, and we can talk about that at some other time, because the gospel includes the bad news that you need to be saved from your sin. And Joel Osteen doesn't talk about sin, and, and I'm not on a Joel Osteen kick, but any pastor who says, I want to teach you the gospel, and the gospel is that you can be healthy, you can be wealthy just like me. You can have a marble bathroom with a golden toilet and a private jet. Uh, that you can have all of your problems erased. That nothing will be, will be wrong. And you can live your best life now. That's not the gospel. And they're not doing evangelism. No matter how attractive that is, the, the part that we're talking about here, the reason that the gospel is, is not received by the world is that the gospel is a blow to, uh, to human sensibilities and human pride. The gospel says there's something wrong and you can't save yourself. And the thing that's wrong is your heart and your nature, and it needs to be saved, it needs to be changed by the Savior who came and gave himself for you. Anybody who's not preaching that message isn't preaching the gospel. I don't care how much money they're making, I don't care how many television shows they have and how many books they've written, they're not uh, doing evangelism. So I, I don't know who else, who else is on there, but yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and unrighteous man wants proof uh, from the Lord who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And that, uh, that approach is an approach that says, God must answer to me. God has shown you, O oh man, what is good, but to do with justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, to be humble before the, before the Lord. The Bible tells us that the Lord has grace, gives grace to the humble, uh, and he opposes the pride, uh, the prideful and the proud. And those who say, I won't believe it unless you can prove it to my satisfaction. And I think we, we talked about this in the sermon a few weeks ago. This is skepticism for skepticism's sake. It's simply an unwillingness to believe what the scriptures have said. Now, you can, we could go on a whole uh, semester's long class on apologetics. What does it mean to be 
to give an apology for the hope that you have and to, to answer some of these things. Uh, and there's a part of that that comes along with evangelism. Um, but the core of evangelism isn't apologetics and isn't proving these things so that others will believe. Uh, the core of evangelism is God has said that this has happened. There were men who witnessed it and who were eyewitnesses of it. And the call to each of us is to repent of our sin and turn to Christ. And so we have to start from the standpoint of you must believe uh, before you see. The Bible point, paints uh, the whole of Christianity in, in a faith in what is not yet seen. That's Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, who hopes for what he sees? No, that's not what hope is. You hope for something you don't have. Uh, you know, you, you think about the things that God has promised, but you don't yet see them and you hope. We walk by faith and not by sight. We could keep going in a much longer direction, but, but the reality is um, that evangelism uh, is hard and it's difficult, as we're talking about, because the unrighteous world wants the gospel to be proven and to be demonstrated before they will believe it. And that's why Paul says this is a scandal. It's a stumbling block. Uh, to Jews, it is weakness. To Greeks, it is foolishness, because it doesn't comport with what man wants. And that means that evangelism, when we're doing it, and when we're telling people things that they don't want to hear, it is not comfortable for them to hear, and lays low their human pride, it's going to be difficult. It might be very hard. Great questions, Teresa. Bill. And that's what happens with a lot of so-called preachers of the gospel that, um, you know, you might not go all the way to a prosperity gospel, um, but it, it even becomes sort of a, a, just a good moral thing. What's the gospel? Well, Jesus makes you a better person. He makes you happier. He makes you kinder to those who are around you. Now, that's a byproduct of the gospel. It ought to be uh, that uh, the kingdom of God is uh, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's, a, that's what happens when the gospel takes hold, but that's not the gospel message. And, and the world doesn't want to hear the gospel message that gives birth to that righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We want instant gratification. I want an immediate return on my investment, and if I can't see that, I don't want it. Absolutely. So this is foolishness and, and uh, a scandal to the world. I saw Dave, and then I saw Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Sure. It's, uh, this, this happens over and over again. If you're, if you're not going out there, God will 
sure, sure. Yeah. Now, now, even before we would say slavery uh, was God's tool for evangelism, um, which those weren't your words, um, and I don't know that that's where you were headed, um, but there's an Ethiopian eunuch uh, in this very same chapter, in Acts chapter 8, that we began with. And the Lord is able to send, and he's able to gather. Yeah. Uh, And you see those corollary lines of thought throughout the book of Acts. That there was a great persecution and the gospel was spreading. There was a great persecution and the gospel was spreading. There was a, and it's the same story. And as the, as the church grows, that's why the early church said that the, the, seed of the, mar, or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, because that's how it happens. Yeah. I think it begins with what we're talking about now. Let's face up to the fact that it's going to be hard. You, you said, what we need to do is just carry our crosses. Uh, we need to stop kidding ourselves and say, oh, evangelism is going to be a cakewalk. No, it's going to be difficult. And so prepare yourself. Uh, prepare yourself through prayer. Uh, prepare yourself through meditating on God's word and through being so enthralled by his glory. That's the main motivation for evangelism, by the way. It's not a notch in our belt. It's not even the salvation of the sinner. That is another good motivation for evangelism. But the main motivation for evangelism is the glory of God. It's obedience to him, and it's shedding abroad the message that Christ is the Savior. And so we need to be motivated by these things. But we need to, to measure, yeah, the, the Bible says this is difficult. You're sheep among wolves and all these other things. Um, but yet we're called. And so as a church, we pray for one another. Uh, and we gather together, we bear one another's burdens, and we begin to encourage one another to be speakers of the gospel as we go out into different places. I saw Mike, uh, and then if it's okay, we're going to get moving, Tim. We're going we're gonna to move on to the next one. Mike? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it is more uh, hostile, I 
Yeah, and you never knew. You were there being persecuted by your classmates, and you just thought it was terrible, but the Lord was working through that, yeah. So how do you get past this misconception? How do you, how do you push past this? Uh, well, you realize what the scripture says. Uh, that this is not some new experience, that evangelism is difficult, that the, the world is antagonistic to our faith. Uh, you also know your own heart. You allow the scripture to, to lay bare those sins of the flesh and of, of self-pleasing and of people-pleasing and the fear of man. Uh, and, and you commit yourself in prayer to the Lord and you ask him to continue to push you in those directions that are legitimately difficult, and yet the Lord promises to work through his people. I think it's really helpful to read things like uh, Paul, writing to the Ephesians at the end of chapter 6, pray for me that I would share the gospel, speak the gospel boldly as I ought. Paul the Apostle is asking the church uh, to pray for him for boldness because he knows he needs it. And if Paul had to ask the church to pray for him for boldness, then we ought to be doing the same. We ought to be praying for one another. When you think of somebody else sitting in this room and you're praying for them throughout this week, and I hope you, you do some of that. Lord, make them bold with the gospel. Maybe in, in their workplace or in their neighborhood or in their family or in the, wherever it is, Lord, make them bold. Help them to overcome or overcome in them the fear of man that keeps us silent with the gospel. So we need to be, uh, we need to be uh, realistic about this. Uh, another one that we've, we've talked about a little bit, misconceptions. Evangelism is really just about using the right formula to produce conversions. Now, where does this come from? Well, uh, it's our bent toward pragmatism. Um, a. Skevington Woods. That is the temptation of this pragmatic age to presume that technique is the secret of evangelism. It's a distrust of God's method. That if we can think of the, the new best way to do it, uh, that if we have the right opening question, we can lead the conversation. I'm going to not uh, read that big long quote that I mentioned to you later. You can borrow my book if you want to read it and I'll point it out to you. Um, but just this idea that, that uh, man thinks uh, that if we have the right technique, then we can produce conversions or we can, we can draw people to Christ. This is not a new thing in the church. It hasn't been a new thing in the church for a, a long time. Um, in 1843, uh, a man by the name of John Williamson Nevin, who was a, uh, a German uh, Presbyterian uh, pastor in, in central PA, he was a theologian, he wrote a book, uh, and the book was called The Anxious Bench. Has anybody ever heard of this book? Good. Uh, the Anxious Bench. Um, was a technique invented in the Second Great Awakening uh, and popularized by Charles Finney, one of the greatest evangelists, greatest evangelists of the Second Great Awakening. It was a new thing, part of the, uh, the so-called new measures. Uh, here's uh, Finney's uh, theories on, um, on conversion. Finney said that religion was nothing more than, quote, the right exercise of the powers of nature. That's all religion is. It's just exercising things correctly, and he said that, uh, that revival was, quote, a purely philosophical result 
of the right use of constituted means. And so what happened during the Second Great Awakening? Well, people began, uh, the preaching of the word got, got fewer and fewer, uh, less and less, and, and it was emphasized less and less. And these other measures to, to introduce what we would today call psychological pressure uh, began to be used in church services and revival services. The most well-known was the anxious bench, which was the first row of pews in the sanctuary where toward the end of the service, if you were feeling under conviction of the Holy Spirit, you were called to come down and sit in those pews in front of the rest of the assembly uh, and be preached to, and everybody else would see the Holy Spirit working on you. Now, nobody uses the anxious bench anymore, uh, but I was converted through an altar call. Maybe one of, uh, or more of you were as well, and it grew out of this practice of the anxious bench. Now, in my life, the Lord used that. I'm not saying that the Lord can't, but there is this bent toward thinking that if we just have the right means, if we just introduce the right pressures, you know, that can produce conversions, and that's not the way that it works. Uh, Nevison put, Nevin, I'm sorry, pushed back against this. Uh, he said, against the system of the bench, there should be uh, a teaching and preaching ministry full of unction and light. He said it should include faithful, faithful excuse me, I'm losing my words this morning. Nevin said that this uh, teaching ministry should include faithful, systematic instruction, pastoral visitation, due attention to order and discipline, and patient perseverance in the details of the ministerial work. And so he, he juxtaposed two systems. One system he called the anxious bench, and the other system he called catechesis. Now, if you're a Presbyterian, uh, catechism is close to your heart. It's the way that we train our children. It's the way that for centuries... Uh, members in the church, lay members in the church, would be, would be taught and led by pastoral visitation and elders coming into the home and a systematic working through. And there was a realization that very often conversion and evangelism is this long, tedious, drawn-out process that the Lord uses, that some water, some plant, others water, and God gives the growth. And there is a dedication to saying, we will use the Lord's means. We use teaching, we use prayer, we use, we use oversight of elders in the church to do some evangelism, and that's what the Lord will use. And I think that is, that is the safest way. Uh, there, that doesn't mean that evangelism only happens through pastoral ministry. Um, but I think we ought to realize that the Lord uses these slow processes. Um, All right, we'll keep on moving. I want to get through some of these. The last one, uh, and Mike brought this up, if nobody's converted, you've failed at evangelism. Uh, there's an evangelist that I like who does street evangelism, um, and, and that's the sort of thing that, man, that's frightening even to think about doing it. Um, and, uh, and, and he had uh, an interview, and somebody asked him, um, you know, does what you do work? Like, what... What return on investment do you, do you see? You know, you're standing out there evangelizing, but does it work? He says it works every time. Because every time, I make Christ known. And that's the point of evangelism. The point of evangelism is to be a herald, to make the message known, is to be a witness, to share what the Lord has done, and it is to be an ambassador to call people to Christ. And we're not in charge uh, of the response. And so the, the response and the conversion is out of our hands, and John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching in Capernaum, 
uh, which will dovetail nicely with a sermon later. Uh, but Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. He's just uh, fed the, the multitudes on the hillsides, and people come asking for a sign. And he says, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven, and if you eat and drink of my flesh, you will live forever. And many people are turned away. And he says, many of his disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And so we need to recognize that, that conversion is not the, um, the measure of whether you have been faithful in evangelism. But speaking the word of Christ is the measure of whether you've been faithful in evangelism. And we need to leave the conversions up to the Lord. We need to pray. For those to whom we're speaking, we need to pray that the Lord would use these things and convert others, uh, but it is not in our hands. Now, one last uh, misconception, and this one gets, there it is, this one gets its own slide. Uh, evangelism isn't the kind of thing that Calvinists do. So you wouldn't have to be pressured into evangelism. Good. I'm sorry, Dave, you've, you've joined the wrong church. Um, I hate to tell you. Uh, we'll, we'll receive uh, letters of resignation afterwards. Um, that's not true. Um, so where does, this, where does this misconception come from? The Lord will move and call as he directs, and we'll just leave it up to him. Yeah. Tim, where does that misconception come from? Oh, okay. Yeah. It's all fatalism, right? Um, there is there's a pretty well-known story of Adoniram Judson, who was one of the first international missionaries. He was a Baptist, by the way, but at that time, the Baptists were all Calvinists as well working off of the, uh, the 1679 uh, Baptist Confession, which is the Westminster Confession with a different uh, section under uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, but that's beside the point. All the theology was the same. Adoniram Judson wanted to go into, uh, I think he went to Burma, um, and he appealed to his church to send him. And there's a well-known story that one of the uh, leaders of the church uh, told him, sit down, young man. If the Lord wants to convert the heathen, he will do it without your or my help. Um, I don't know to what extent that account is apocryphal or true. Uh, it's certainly been repeated uh, enough, uh, and I can't vouch. I wasn't there, but uh, there is this long-standing misconception that if the Lord wants to do something, he will do it. Uh, and Calvinists have no need to evangelize, um, but don't tell that to this guy. Don't tell that to Calvin. Calvin was an evangelist. He loved evangelism. His evangelism might look different than what you think your evangelism should look like, and, and he was in a different uh, culture, a different society, but Calvin was an evangelist. Uh, I don't know if you are aware, but most of what Calvin did um, to evangelize, to spread the gospel, was to train pastors. Hundreds and hundreds of pastors were sent out from Geneva every year to go back to places like France and the Huguenots and to raise up a church 
where the pastors went back and were then martyred. And they have found records of uh, this enormous quantity of wine and provisions that was allotted to Calvin from the Council of Geneva. And they're wondering, well, well, why did Calvin need so much wine and so much food? He was a sickly man. He was always very thin. Uh, he couldn't eat very much. Why did he need all these provisions? Well, because he sent men out, and they were martyred, and their families came back to Geneva, and they were under his tab. He was an evangelist. He trained pastors, and he sent them out. Uh, they actually sent from Geneva um, two ministers and 11 laymen uh, to establish a reform mission in Brazil. Uh, it, was, uh, it was 1557 on the island of Dieppe in the Guanabara Bay of Brazil. Um, there was a man, uh, Nicolas Duran uh, via Gaillon. My French is terrible. Um, he had requested Calvin's assistance, and then when the, the Protestants got to Brazil, he turned on them. Um, first, he exiled them, uh, sent them all back to France, uh, and uh, Villagayon decided to turn back to the Roman Catholic Church, and he got rid of the Protestants who had come to establish a mission. Um, and the two pastors, along with several other laymen after they were exiled, returned again to Brazil. They went from Europe to Brazil and back to Europe and had a heart so much for evangelism, they went back to Brazil, where they were captured by Villagayon, uh, they, were, uh, they were asked to produce a statement of faith, which is now known as the Guanabara Confession of Faith. We've used it in our services. Uh, and after they produced this confession of faith, they were all strangled to death. And Calvin and his consistory sent these men. They did lots of evangelism. Calvin quoting, or I'm sorry, commenting on Romans chapter 10. How will they believe unless they are sent? How will they believe in whom they've never heard? Calvin says... Uh, that the gospel, quote, does not fall from the clouds like rain, but it is brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. And so don't tell Calvin that Calvinists don't evangelize. Uh, don't tell that guy. That's Richard Baxter. Uh, he's written a well-known book called The Reformed Pastor. Um, he wasn't actually uh, reformed in the sense that we would think it, but he was Calvinistic uh, in much of his theology. And uh, his book details uh, the sort of parish ministry that he had where there were 600 uh, converts under his ministry in, the, in uh, the space of 17 years. And guess how those converts came? Pastoral visitation and catechesis. He was in their homes every week, and he would go around, and he said at the end of his ministry when he came uh, to Kidderminster, which is, which is where he was uh, set to, to go and to have his ministry, um, he said there were certain streets in the town where not a single person uh, confessed Christ and, and faith in him. And by the time he left, 17 years later, there were streets that every person on the street confessed Christ and was in a living relationship with Christ. Because he did normal evangelism, and he went throughout the town, and he, he preached these things. Uh, don't tell that guy, Thomas Boston, uh, that Calvinists don't do evangelism. He wrote uh, a little book, Soliloquy on the Art of Man Fishing. Uh, this is a, a fun little... It's got a, a long puritanical sort of... Um, uh, subtitle that I forget, but it's, you know, it's one of these big, long, uh, extemporaneous things. Um, that's not the right word, but anyway. Um, so it's this big, long, extended allegory, really, on, on uh, being a fisher of men and how uh, sinners are a lot like fish, and, uh, and some will nibble at the bait, and some will latch on, and he, all of these allegories. But it, it's like 200 pages about what does it mean to fish for souls, because he had a heart for evangelism, and he wanted to see people converted. Now, this guy is the most Presbyterian-looking of all of them. 
Um, this is Horatius Bonar. Uh, he was a hymn writer, mostly. He wrote the hymn, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say, Come Up to Me and Rest, and lots and lots of others. Uh, but he was also a Presbyterian pastor, uh, as was his father and his grandfather before him and his brother Andrew. Um, he wrote a book, um, uh, Words to Winners of Lost Souls. It's really an appeal to ministers to be more evangelistic uh, and to preach the gospel so that others would hear. His brother, Andrew Bonar, uh, in 1843, traveled with Robert Murray McShane to Palestine in an effort to meet and to evangelize Jews. It was a great hope of many of the men of that day is that the Jews would be brought back to faith. And so they traveled from Scotland uh, with their thick brogues all the way to, uh, to Palestine uh, to meet and to hopefully convert Jews. And it was a great evangelistic mission. It was wonderful. Um, so Calvinists are and ought to be zealous for evangelism. Uh, now, that brings us uh, to the next question, uh, and maybe this is where we, we'll get a, a little bit of this covered. Um, but where does evangelism happen? And, and now we're starting to, to shift the focus uh, from the theory to the practice. Um, and the question really, you know, I, I put up all those pictures of, uh, of those, uh, those men, and uh, if you read their works and you say, oh, well, the, the Puritans and the Calvinists, and they all cared about evangelism and and uh, the system of catechesis, you might get the impression that, uh, that evangelism really only happens in the church. Uh, but don't forget that those men were writing in a very different culture, a very different time. Uh, if you were a citizen of Calvin's Geneva, you had to be a member of the church, and vice versa. Uh, those two went hand in hand, and you had to be in church. And so how did Calvin evangelize? He preached to the people that showed up week after week after week. He had a captive audience. He could do that. And even for Richard Baxter, he, you know, it was this culture that is much different than ours is today where, oh, there's a new minister in town. Of course he's going to stop by. He's going to ask you a few spiritual questions. He's going to, uh, you know, this is what they do. And, and everybody was, was uh, aware of these things, but that's not the world that we live in. We live in this world that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. Uh, Christians are increasingly vilified. Pluralism celebrated and it's stuffed down your throat whether you want it or not. And so our society in contemporary America resembles less and less the society of 17th century Europe. But I think there is some uh, other uh, time and place that we can learn from that our society is looking more and more like, and that is the first century Greco-Roman world, where there is pluralism in abundance, uh, where Christianity is foolishness, and where the, uh, the order of the day is to do anything but to listen, from, uh, listen to revelation that comes from on high and tells you about a God who, uh, who has um, sent his son to be a savior. Now, uh, so what does that mean? Well, where does evangelism happen? Well, um, I think it does still happen in the church. And we're going to look uh, in just a minute. Everybody grab your Bibles um, and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And if there is uh, a place in the New Testament where we can find Paul writing uh, to a church that is assaulted by a culture just uh, steeped in anti-Christian thinking, I think Corinth is it. That's why uh, a while ago uh, we preached through Corinthians, because it's the, it's the time that we're in. It's the culture that we're in more and more and more. Now, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verses 22 to 25. Could I get a volunteer, please, to read that? John, go ahead. 22. 
22 to 25, yeah. And it's going to seem strange. Uh, this is not about, uh, go out and evangelize, but, but you'll, you'll see where we're headed with this in just a minute. Will they not say? Yeah. No, 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 you're good. But if all prophecy and all commandment is an unbeliever or outsider and unbeliever, being convicted by all, and is called to account by all, teaches the defiance of his words. So, following up the faith, you will worship God and declare that God is greater than the angels. Thank you. Now, my point is not to take up the question of, uh, of tongues, and we dealt with that a while ago. But notice what Paul is doing and how he's writing. He's been urging in this section the need for edification in gathered Christian worship. What is one of the reasons that he says gathered Christian worship ought to be edifying? Because what if an unbeliever or an outsider comes in among you? Here's the church in Corinth, surrounded by people who think it's foolishness and it's ridiculous and it is a stumbling block and Paul says you ought to order your worship in such a way that when outsiders are among you, they will be convicted. In a very hostile place. I think this is a challenge for us. This is one of the first things we need to ask about the way that we do evangelism. This ought to be a challenge first for your pastor, uh, that I am preaching in a way not just uh, to tickle the ears of the people who already are convinced, uh, but that there's evangelism happening in the gathered worship. Uh, that the Lord would use that on, you know, to, to draw our children to him and those that are on, on the edges of, of our community, but also that, you know, what if, what if someone was to come in? What if you were to invite one of your unbelieving coworkers or neighbors to come to a Christmas Eve service? The church ought to be a place where that can happen. And so often, especially, if I could be so bold as to say it, especially in small, conservative, reformed Presbyterian churches, we don't even prepare for that eventuality. Nobody's going to come and find us. Uh, we're not doing the thing that everybody wants. We don't have a, a rock band in the, in the fishbowl with a drummer up front. We, we're not doing that sort of thing, and so nobody's going to come. Uh, but Paul says, you know, you've got all these Christians gathered around. What, what ought you to be doing? Well, preaching and teaching in such a way that when the unbelievers enter, they are laid, uh, the, the thoughts and intentions of their hearts are laid bare. Uh, I have, I've heard it said in this church and within uh, the membership of this church, I wish Redeemer was the kind of place I could bring my unbelieving friends. I'll let you judge the, the, the truthfulness, and I'm not going to tell you who said that, but I'll let you judge the truthfulness of, of that statement. Um, but is there room for us to grow in evangelism here, where we're gathered? And what would it take for us to, to take that seriously and to move in that direction? You've got fresh eyes on the whole situation, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Be gentle. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And it, our service looks different, not just the style of music, but it looks different uh, from a lot of what other churches do. Now, you also missed the, uh, sorry, uh, Alexander, you, you missed the series we did last year at this time on worship. So we've already talked about why we worship the way that we do, um, but, but there are reasons, and, and we want to be thoroughly biblical in what we're doing. And, and our elders and leaders are convinced that we're doing that, but we also need to ask the question, um, are there... Are there um, well-intentioned human stumbling blocks that keep our church looking just like us and not a place where we can bring in outsiders and they can hear the gospel. I don't know if that's the right way to ask the question or not. Ronnie, what do you think about that? Saw Lee in the back and then Mike. Okay. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not willing to answer that particular question. It it ought to happen in the church, um, and the passage that I read seems to imply that it ought to happen in the gathered worship of the body. There are other avenues. Uh, there are other ministries of churches that can be used for evangelistic endeavors. Um, and I think that is something worth talking about and thinking about um, and using if the Lord would allow us. Um, but where we're starting, and we're moving in that direction. The question is, what about... Yeah. Right. Right. No. No. The glory of God is the only thing. Yeah. Exactly. Which is that misconception that we were dealing with a while ago. Um, uh, the, the main thing, there are uh, secondary 
aims in the gathered worship of the church, but the main thing is the glory of God. Um, now, he is glorified in uh, the saving of sinners. He's glorified in the edification of the saints. He's glorified in the sealing of the reprobate for destruction. He's glorified in a lot of different ways, and a lot of those things happen in the gathered worship of the church. Um, and the question I was asking is, is within what we already, uh, you know, taking that whole discussion from last year, there we are, uh, taking that whole discussion from last year, um, where do we as a church, where could we stand to grow or be stretched or change? Um, maybe it's not in anything having to, I'm not proposing that we change the service, we've already talked about that. Um, maybe it has to do in the people that are coming, and, you know, Ronnie said, you feel it is a place you could bring, uh, a, a, an unbelieving friend, but you, you haven't been bold enough to do it yet. Thank you for that, that honesty. Um, because what happens, well, you, you sit with someone who doesn't know what the flow is, and they're following the program and just trying to keep up, and just, you know, th their mind is swimming as they're following through the different steps. Um, and that's all well and good. But what happens afterwards when you step out in the congregation, you say, so what did you think? Then there's, a, then there's a personal conversation that happens, and the person says, oh, you know. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's where we're headed, that it's not just in the church. Uh, that, that they work in concert, and, and that's where we're going to be headed next, next week. Um, and <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, I, I saw Chris and then, and then Linda. Uh, Chris, real quick. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. 
That's a good preview for next week. Linda, you get the last word. Thank you, Linda. Um, as a follow-up, um, think about Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch. There's the Ethiopian eunuch reading a scroll. Somehow he got a hold of it, uh, and the Holy Spirit drops him in the chariot, or next to him at least. Uh, and the question is, do you understand what you're reading? And to which the Ethiopian eunuch replies, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? This is what we're talking about. Um, this is a good preview for next week. We're going we're to start talking about, well, well personally, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we follow up? But I think in the church is a great place to start so that later you can say, do you understand what you heard? And they can say, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And I think that's, that's where we need to be uh, bold and faithful if the Lord would allow. Yeah. So let's pray and uh, let's have a break. Gracious and glorious Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would sink it deep into our hearts, that we would live it out, and that we would not just be hearers, but doers of your word as well as you scatter us, just like you have been scattering your people throughout the ages. So we pray that we would go preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, make us evangelists even today. We pray that we would come away from our worship service with some truth to share with someone uh, who is not here or may not come and, and darken the door of the congregation. Uh, but give us a word to speak to those that we'll come into contact with this week. Feed us on your gospel and by the merits of Christ and work in us by your spirit so that you would be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.